Know the silence that lives at the depth of all things. Now the dissonance of the world cannot overwhelm you. Know the radiance that shines forth as the nature of all things. Now you can face into the darkness and not waver. Know the vastness that everywhere is the truth of all things. And now the small cares of your life no longer crush you. Know yourself nakedly, O bright expanse of wakefulness. Now you are anchored amidst the tides of self-forgetting. It's always worth waiting for a poem. So tonight I want to talk about how our spiritual life and particularly vipassana or mindfulness meditation can help us to deepen a sense of connectedness with all life. A great uh, Zen master once said, enlightenment is intimacy with all things. So just sort of let that sink in for a minute. And when you do, you might find this question, what did he mean by that? This was an enlightened person speaking. What could that mean? What would that mean for us? And so if we think of the moments where we experience some kind of intimacy, maybe with our grandma or some little child or with our partner or a mountain, whoever, we think about those moments and we realize that in order to experience intimacy, we had to be there. We had to be fully present. And we also had to have a quality of openness or willingness. And we had to be paying um, attention intimacy. So, of course, all sorts of different people have different um, experiences and interpretations of intimacy, and I'll just share with you an embarrassing little bit of um, my history back long ago before my husband and I were married some 20-some years ago, where neither of us were exactly in knowing the path of conscious relationship. So I would sort of harangue and complain as a way of getting more intimacy, you know, didn't work that well. And I'd say, no, I want you to, I want you to tell me how you feel. And so he'd say, I did tell you, I love you already, okay? And I'd say, no, I want you to actually connect with it so that you actually feel it when you sit. And he actually said this once, and we still laugh. He said, are you saying you want me to say it and feel it? <laughs> you know, it was just like, what? So that's 25 years ago or something, and we've come a long way. The journey to intimacy. But um, what would it actually mean to be intimate with all things? To be present and open to all of the joys and all of the sorrows. That doesn't mean we like the sorrows. There's a difference between liking it and being open, allowing that to be there without closing down, to being open to life. What would it mean? What would it be like? So we cultivate this kind of presence and intimacy through meditation. And um, I know that many of you have noticed that sitting in meditation is sometimes like being put under a magnifying glass. So whatever is there seems, you know, magnified. So the love and the beauty might at certain times be huge. And also, as we all know, I'm sure most people in this room have noticed, that sometimes when we're sitting, what gets magnified are the ways that we're not present. So we become so aware sometimes 
of just how many stories and plans and fantasies and schemes are filling our mind, preventing us from just being here in the moment. In this particular season, you might be sitting there attending to your breath and notice yourself planning the spiritual practice of shopping, you know, <laughs> figuring out how you'll get a parking space, you know. So, um, or we may be, you know, you might be experiencing sickness or pain or tiredness. A lot of times at evening classes, there's a lot of tiredness. And then, so often what we're noticing under the magnifying glass is that we judge ourselves for feeling tired or we judge ourselves for feeling sick or in pain and we it's in this awareness that comes in meditation that we begin to go oh look how i have been treating myself look what my mind is full of so in meditation we can see so much in our self. Sometimes it's hard to see it. Sometimes people come in to talk to me and they, get, they go after meditating for a while, they say, I cannot believe how insecure I am or how grandiose I am or how needy I am or whatever the, the how is. Somehow they didn't quite realize the extent of it until they sat quietly with themselves for a while and saw what was going on in their mind. So um, if you happen to be one of these people who sits to meditate and notices all this mind stuff, welcome to the club. Welcome to the human race. This is what minds are doing, all of, all of them. People are busy with all this stuff. The unusual thing that's so very rare is that very few people stop and actually pay attention and find out <coughs> that's the stuff that's filling the mind. In fact, it's the stuff that's running the world when it's unattended to. So if we notice that we have fears and plans and memories and our, our mind isn't doing just what we think it should be doing, <coughs> uh, we're not bad or guilty or hopeless or you know, meditation failures. The Buddha did not recommend meditation as punishment, <laughs> quite the opposite. It's just that it is so painful when we're lost in the mind, when we're lost in the story and lost in the thoughts, and we've basically lost the connection to our essential nature, it's painful. We end up feeling separate and disconnected. And from that separateness, there is a yearning that comes, um, a longing, a longing to, for intimacy, for connectedness or communion, something meaningful, something connected. This um, yearning is sometimes called by the mystics longing to have reunion with the beloved, whether it's the inner beloved or the outer beloved. You can see I love my roomy book. <laughs> my husband said, Deborah, you should mark the ones that you're not going to use. There's less pages. Um, but Rumi, as you know, so many of his poems are fueled by this what's called the holy longing, the longing for the deep true connection. So you can feel it in this poem. I'm just going to read a few lines of this poem. The tambourine begs, touch my skin so I can be myself. Let me feel you enter each limb, bone by bone that what last night died can be whole today. Why live some more sober way and feel you ebbing out? I won't do it. Either give me enough wine or leave me alone, now that I know how it is to be in a constant conversation 
with you. So you can just feel that longing. There's so many, so many of these poems, or you know, Hafiz or um, Kabir or Mirbai, who basically, if you wanted to put it into a few words, it would be, "Please God, you know, come back or stay with me." The holy longing. So this yearning for connection is part of what pulls us and keeps us in the spiritual journey. It's part of what brings us to the work, the sacred work, of learning. And it takes practice to learn to be present, to learn to bring compassion and mindfulness to our life. Um, Pema Chodron, who is a wonderful uh, woman Buddhist American meditation master, um, describes mindfulness in a way I love. She says, um, mindfulness, a moment of mindfulness, and all we need is a moment of mindfulness, and then the next, is a moment where we meet whatever may be arising, whether it's a, a, a rapture or a boredom, Whatever it is, we meet it with clarity and simultaneously kindness. Simultaneously. So maybe tonight, for instance, you'd be sitting, you'd be breathing, and maybe you'd be... Um, <laughs> maybe you'd be sitting there going, I really want such and such candidate to be president. <laughs> really want it. And then maybe you find yourself sort of spinning off into fantasies of recounts and legal procedures and victory parties and speeches that surprise everybody or something. You're really maybe into this one particular candidate. And then somewhere, five minutes, ten minutes, however, a half an hour down the road, you remember you're meditating. <laughs> and what clarity does at that moment is just go, oh, that's just wanting. That's all. There's just no extra, no judging, just wanting. And simultaneously, instead of it sort of being a, a kind of cold, like wanting or a, a sort of slap, you know, oh, gotcha, bad, you're wanting again, the kindness part is just sort of like, oh, there's just wanting again. Oh, that human thing. Just being kind with whatever it might be. Oh, jealous rage. Ah, no. Ooh, want to kill him. Ah, kindness. Clarity and kindness. So if you think about that, of course, that's one moment of it at a time. But we practice letting those moments expand. What a radical way to spend 30 or 40 minutes a day, or you know, 10 days here and there. What a radical way to spend any time, because if you think about it, it's completely opposed to our conditioning. We're conditioned as the species and on this planet to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And then all sorts of things get added to that basic formula. The radical invitation from the Buddha in Buddhist meditation was, we've been invited to open to the pleasant, to open to the neutral, and to open to the unpleasant. That's the radical movement. Not to like it, we don't have to like it, but the work is to meet whatever arises with clarity <laughs> and this openness, this quality of ah, I can allow this. So we learn to allow the contractions. We learn to be with and trust at even the periods of contraction. There are times where we have to practice holding 
our fear or our uh, unworthiness or our stuckness in compassion. And so what we're practicing and learning is how to open to being closed. Yeah, because our little personality, our mind can't do that. So by practicing that, we have to. We're stretching into something more vast than our small self. And as we practice in this way, to open to all of life as it is, we are making room for reality. We're making room for life. We're making room for the possibility that we could live in peace with this life. So practicing like this, we're actually training the mind and body in the art of letting go. We're, this training is liberating because what it's doing over time, moment by moment, is that it's helping us loosen the grip on the sense of a solid, separate self. This self that says, you know, I will not allow any more change. You know, no more impermanence. That's it. No more suffering. You know, this, this is the, this, this self, that's the way it is in there sometimes. And this practice helps us to begin to loosen the grip on that. It's a conditioned self. And as we do this over and over and over and over, we're cultivating the capacity to be intimate with all things. We're cultivating that heart of freedom. And we're cultivating the capacity to not only be intimate with our you know, fears and doubts, but also with our gifts and our treasures, to open to it all, to allow it all. This is the poem I asked my husband to go get from the car. That's how important this one was to me. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. This is the magic ingredient here. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed into its radiant jewel-like essence. I bow to the one who has made it so, who has crafted this master game. To play it is purest delight to honor its form, true devotion. So I can't tell you how many times this secret ingredient um, has been made true over and over again in my life. And in, I'm a psychotherapist for 20-some years, as well as a meditation teacher. So I've just seen, really, thousands of people discover this truth. Each condition I free from, flew, Flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me. This is the radical shift. We think we're supposed to flee from the unpleasant and only go towards the pleasant, and there's this bizarre deal. We finally find out it's, oh, it's completely opposite of how we think it works. I was uh, working with a woman at a meditation retreat who came in to an interview um, pretty disturbed because she thought she wasn't getting anywhere in her practice. She said, I'm just spending all my time in fantasy. She said, most of it's romantic fantasy, and this is true what I'm about to say, but she said, in the last sitting, I spent almost the entire sitting fantasizing 
cleaning my closet. <laughs> really, she said that. And I said, well, <laughs> I guess one has to be pretty desperately in need of not being present if you'll spend your entire time cleaning a closet. You know, there's a lot of, you could have managed, you know, to go to Maui or something in your mind, but something tropical anyway, but um, no, it was the closet. So I just said, ra rather than going off away from whatever is going on here, let's just come back. Let's see what happens if you're just present with whatever may be here. There's not something that you're supposed to have happen, just whatever may be here. So like said, so first just notice the sensations that are occurring in your body. And it took her only a few moments to drop and notice that there was this sort of heavy ache in her chest, in her heart. And as she just sat with that for a few moments, she said, oh, there's so much loneliness and sadness. So, of course, I invited her, can you be, just be with <coughs> loneliness and sadness. You don't have to try to get rid of it or to make anything happen other than experience it. So she sat and she was experiencing this loneliness and it, <laughs> it dropped her down into her deepest fear, which was a feeling that she described of having a black hole, like a bottomless pit in her heart. And it felt like, as she was feeling it, it was the fear of always being alone. And it wasn't just fear, it was terror. There was terror as she attempted to even be near this black hole. So I just, and this process lasted about 20 minutes or so, I said, what if you just be here with just this, this fear, this blackness? And she was able to tolerate moments here and there and even get curious and interested, which is one of the uh, qualities of mindfulness, to be interested. Isn't this amazing? <coughs> and this worst fear, black hole, eventually in this 20 minutes, transformed into this vast expanse of, of a black piece that was completely still and simultaneously where she, she felt connected to everything while she was in this place. This is one of those conditions that normally we all flee from. But when we finally can just be present with clarity and kindness, it has the opportunity to unfold. Another one of the um, bhakti or um, devotional mystics, Hafiz, says, don't squander your loneliness too quickly. Let it cut deep. Let it ferment and season you as few human or even divine ingredients can. So, so as I said a moment ago, it is a, a sort of bizarre setup here in our particular planet, in our world. If we try to untangle the knots that are in us with force, they get tighter. And you probably notice that. If we try to resist the tightness in ourselves, it gets more blocked. But when we can meet the knots or the tangles or the whatevers in ourselves with this quality of clarity and openness or kindness, the knots untangle all by themselves in their own time. I want to add, we have to trust that it will happen in its own time. <coughs> so we notice that this quality of wise and compassionate presence is, is both healing and liberating. And intimacy 
is also healing and liberating. Um, there's a sutra. You might be just surprised as I was to hear this sutra. Um, a young monk name, named Megia comes to the Buddha because he's having trouble with his meditation. And he asked the Buddha for help. And the Buddha, being very wise and knowing, all-knowing, is able to <laughs> prescribe different things to different meditators. What he recommended to Megia, listen to what he said. Megia, develop a lovely intimacy. Build a spiritual friendship with a comrade. That was the instruction from the Buddha for this individual of how to help his meditation practice. Because the Buddha understood that this taking refuge in the Sangha, taking refuge in spiritual community, is part of the path of awakening. And that's so for all of us. And we all know, particularly in this culture at this time, um, this isn't a necessarily easy assignment. Is it to just go out and create a spiritual intimacy with someone? Yet it's very important. Uh, it can be difficult because closeness between people often brings up all kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? Fears or doubts or judgments or whatever. And if we are using our relationships as spiritual practice, using our whole life as practice, and if fear or doubt or judgment should come, what do we do? We meet the fear with clarity and compassion or kindness. That's right. <coughs> it's just the same practice. What, whatever comes up, we meet it. Oh, and then if it's a relational issue, if you're doing this with your um, comrade, as the Buddha would say, we learn how to actually communicate, to tell the truth about our fears or our judgments. We learn how to communicate in a way that develops trust and intimacy. So mindfulness and a conscious relationship are um, help us to develop the healing power of compassionate listening. I'm going to tell you a story that you may have heard because it's become a sort of classic story. It's true. It happened, I think, about eight or nine years ago. Um, a woman who was born and raised in the Ojibwe tribe um, and had gone off as a young adult to go, you know, as young adults do, go do something different, was gone several years, and came back to live at her home with her tribe. <coughs> and having the fresh eyes of having been away and coming back, she really saw at a, at a much deeper level the devastation that had occurred in her community from poverty and alcoholism. And she asked the elders if she could create a healing ritual for the community, and they agreed. And almost all the adult members of this community came to the ritual. And she set it up um, with three consecutive circles. And the inner circle were the elders, the very oldest in the community, the grandparents, or in some cases, great-grandparents. And I don't know what she did to encourage this community to be able to talk at the level they they spoke, um, but I know that they hadn't, because of their particular culture, prior to this, in an open way, really talked openly about these feelings. But the first group that spoke were the inner circle, these grandparents, and they told the truth about what it was like when the United States government came and took their children off to boarding schools. Imagine if that was your children. Th these people had already lost everything, and now the government took <coughs> their children. And they talked about how they felt powerless to protect their children. 
and that when having lost everything, the children were now gone, they went into despair and they started to drink. And their children, who were all adults, 50, 60-year-old adults, were letting in at some new level really what had, had led their parents to become almost 100% at that point alcoholics. The next circle to talk were th their children, the 50, 60-year-olds, and they shared in a, for the first time openly with the whole community what it had been like for them to have been children who were taken off to a boarding school, removed from their family, their home, their culture, their language, their religion, their values, and taken and told there's another way and it's better. And they talked about the profound confusion and the sense of, of, of disconnection. Where do I belong? And they talked about what it was like to both yearn to go home and go home and find their family drunk. And just the feeling of belonging nowhere. And finally, the, um, the youngest group, everybody in this ritual were adults. There were no children in this ritual. But it, the, it would be the grandchildren of the first people who spoke. Finally, they spoke, and they talked about what it had been like to grow up in a community ripped apart by alcoholism. And it's hard. It's actually hard. Um, it's hard for us to really admit and feel and think about these things. Mm -hmm. It's certainly hard for us to open to what we have done to people of color in so many different ways, in so many different settings. It's hard. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to face it. And it was hard for them to talk about it. They didn't for decades. But when they finally did, uh, there was a quality of hearing each other. From this quality of compassionate listening, their hearts began to open. They began the process of healing and forgiving. And for the first time, they wept together as a community. The, um, there was a spontaneous thing that happened at the end where um, people begin to make offerings. And one old man stood up and he said, having heard all this, I vow I will never drink again. And then another very old woman stood up and said, I will teach the younger ones the ways of making baskets, and I will teach the songs that I learned when I was a child that have not been sung for 65 years. So through this deep truth and listening, the fabric of this community began to be rewoven. Of course, it's a long process. We all know that. But I tell this story partly because it's important for us to keep remembering um, things that have happened so recently, such unthinkable things. Imagine if we tried to go take a whole group of people's children away now. What would happen? Unthinkable. But I also tell it because part of our work in the spiritual life is to <coughs> learn, and it is a learning, it's a practice, to bring that same quality of healing, attention, and compassionate listening to ourself and to each other. So we learn through practice that we can meet our shame and our, our unworthiness or whatever it is, our doubt, with compassion and mercy instead of with judgment and self-hatred. And we also learn, just as this tribe, the Ojibwe people, learn that as we keep practicing the practice of opening and compassionate listening, we too can experience this healing and this re 
claiming of our wholeness. And it's such an important practice because the more we do it, the more we meet ourselves with compassion and awareness instead of judgment, we naturally, without effort, are able to respond that way to others. So we're bringing that most needed quality into our world by practicing it towards ourselves. It's really important. I'll tell you another story um, closer to home. Many of you know that for many, many, 20-some years, I've led, uh, I've co-led wilderness vision quests um, with a dear friend named Devi. In fact, there's a number of people here in the room tonight who've been with us out in the wilderness. Um, and normally, Devi and I have led these groups uh, of women um, but this last summer, we didn't take a group because Devi turned 60. So a very small group of close friends took uh, Devi out and held this space for her to do her vision quest into eldership in her, her 60-year vision quest. And I'll tell you, she's a, quite an extraordinary woman. I think a lot of you know her from different ways. Um, She's a poet, writer, dancer, therapist, meditating for 20 or 25 years. She's a very deep well to dip into and a wonderful person. Um, and she's also a courageous and inspiring woman. And this vision quest, we hiked out first as a group to our base camp. And then from there, she went on a long ways away from we, where we were. She's way up on a mountain, far, far from where we could see or hear her for three days and three nights alone. Um, when, before she left, when we had the ritual of her leaving, in the prayer, she made this prayer that I remembered because it, it was so wise. The prayer was, may I be empty enough to hear the deepest truth and guidance and may I have enough trust to follow it. So she went off for her three days, and she came back and told us different stories. But one of the first things that she shared uh, was, and I actually wrote this phrase down, she said, I've been, I was freed of the tyranny of should. And she said, I didn't have a schedule. I didn't do anything I should do. You know, this is someone who's led so many vision quests. There's this whole little formula. She knows exactly what she should do. She didn't do any of that. She said, I didn't have any schedule. I, I sat when I wanted to sit, and I slept when I wanted to sleep, and I ate when I wanted to eat. And she said, I just I sat and I listened to the wind moving through the trees, and I watched the light on the water, and... and um, she listened to, she, she, oh, she told us stories and stories about the movement of the stars across the night sky, which, which she would stay up almost all night watching and then nap in the day because she wasn't going to do should. And, and then she, of course, also, having been a long, long time meditator and having gone to zillions of meditation retreats, she was watching her mind closely. And she would hear these little voices go, I should write a poem. And she would just go, nope, I'm not doing anything. I'm going to be 60. I'm, I'm not going to do it from should. She's so great. Um, instead, she just sat there and paid attention to what was happening inside and outside of her. And she said that the first night, the darkness came. It was a very dark time. There wasn't a moon. And in that first night alone, she said, although she had looked at the issues of aging and all of that a lot, she'd even taught workshops in it, that night she faced the reality of aging, the reality that what would lie ahead for her was guaranteed to include aging and death, loss, grief, 
These are the things that there's no getting out of. And she said, at some, in some way, she faced it far more deeply than she ever had before. And it was very hard to do. It was very frightening. But she sat with it. She allowed herself to be with, to open to how hard it was to face the fact of becoming an elder. The second night, she said, she just sat with tears streaming down her face at the beauty of the earth, just overcome by the beauty of the world. And the third night, she described being in a place within herself where there was no separation between herself and this immense beauty of the lake and the night sky. She listened so deeply that she could hear the trees talking. And uh, that's a whole other Dharma talk about what the trees had to say, but she was listening so deeply. And finally, there were experiences of recognizing her innermost nature, her innermost truth, her essential nature. And from that place of deep stillness, a knowing arose in her that would go something like this, that yes, in fact, it's true that what lies ahead for me will include, in addition to all the births and the celebrations and the grandchildren, there will be loss and grief and death. And that's okay. It's workable. And there's a way from this place of beingness that she was in that she felt she could relax and trust. And the trust was not in anything outside that's impermanent, but in this deep inner lake of, of being. There was a knowing that that does not die. So she returned to our little group, and she was glowing like a two-year-old, really. Really, she was just, she looked like she was two. And at the same time, somehow simultaneously, she was carrying this profound presence of the mountain and of being an elder, a glowing two-year-old elder. So for our last few days, we had three more days up there together, um, I watched her kind of closely because this was such a powerful time. And I'm always interested in not just the spiritual experience, but more how does that translate into our life. And she was just, there was a deep relaxation in her, and she was in loving connection with herself and with the people in the group. But she was also in a new kind of loving connection with her aging body. And this was the test, when the rain came. It's not just rain, but if you've ever been backpacking and the wind blows really hard, the rain and wind together usually mean that water is going to get into your gear and to your tent, which it did. She was in this most relaxed place with everything getting wet and cold. And I've been camping with her so many, many, many times. I thought, well, this is, <laughs> this is a new response here. Um, she was also relaxed when we were hiking out there was a new way that she was able to simply ask with nothing else nothing attached to it ask for help in carrying some of her weight because her hip hurt now for most of us that would not be quite a, such a big deal but for her it was a very big deal to simply ask for help carrying weight I knew what a big deal that was she had really opened to the cycles of life and death. She was embodying being intimate with all things, just being with life. 
And I think it's inspiring and important for us to hear the stories of members of our own Sangha. She does come here to Spirit Rock a lot. Um, awakening stories of each other and of our own Sangha. Because by hearing the stories about us, it helps to remind us that this truth that we're longing for is not out there somewhere. It's the essence of who we are. It's in every one of us. Through our practice, we're learning to let go of all sort of self-identities and all sorts of grasping to who we thought we were, we were and how we were supposed to be. We're letting go of our attachment to that moment by moment. And when we let go of who we thought we were, what remains is this who we, who we really are under all of that which is actually impossible to put words on, but it could be called um, sacred emptiness. But that word emptiness doesn't get close. This has no isolation or depression of emptiness in it. It's rather a, a vast openness that is still and at the same time completely compassionately connected with everything. That's who we all are. So to rest in that is to be intimate with all things. I will um, finish with a quote from a teacher who has been really important, very important to myself and to Jack and to many of the Spirit Rock teachers. His name is Hamid Almas, and he's been a teacher to us. Um, and I want to say before I read this, in case you think that he's some sort of a renunciate, <coughs> he's a householder. He has a family, child, you know, car, insurance payments, all of that stuff that we have. And these are lines that were taken out of a spiritual autobiography where during a period of very intense awakening, he was writing in a journal. And these are lines that were taken directly out of a journal. It's not a book he wrote, just his journal of the period of his awakening. He says, I see that the letting go has to be total. I need to let go of practically everything, a state, a station, fruit of work, contribution, recognition, everything. I must let go of everything because none of it is mine. As I, the individual self, relinquish my hold, I in effect accept and embrace the complete voidness of the absolute, the infinity of silence is what remains, luminous stillness, absolute transparency, indescribable intimacy. So let's just sit together for a few moments.
whatever is here right now, whatever it is, tiredness or comparison, whatever may be here, just let yourself see it with clarity. Just what's true. And simultaneously, whatever it may be, can you open and make room for yourself just as you are in this moment? Whatever it is, can you hold yourself in kindness? May we meet ourselves and all beings with clarity and kindness, <coughs> with wisdom and compassion. And may all beings be free. <coughs> 